Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like to access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Then join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bonesandbobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group, which uh, had a, got a little Ed Gein-tastic it uh, did, this, it did. this week. So Also, though, it got some witch bottle love from an actual <gasps> page. I forgot about that, and yes. we need to ask her if we can share it with the rest of you guys, because one of our patrons has... In her possession, an actual intact witch bottle. Yes. From like, did she say 1918 or something like that? Mm. It's old. It's well, old it's, after, it's... it's after 1860 because of the nails, but I can't remember when she said. It's before 1920. It's cool. No matter when it's from. Yeah, maybe 1906. I can't remember. Anyway, I'm <laughs> sure she's listening to this and being like, oh my god, can't you just look? <laughs> um, and, and yes, I, I can, but I also really want to talk about it a lot. So I'm going to ask you for permission first. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, You'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merely morbid, marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbin, Season 1, Episode 11, Knit 1, Spy 2. Two. <laughs> Goodness. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. I'm Natalie from Uberdork Designs, an official murderino maker. Fancy. Fun. Indeed. All right. Indeed. So how you doing? What's up? What's happening? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> that is, if that's not a 2020 response, I don't know what is. <laughs> I... There is an answer. I know there is. It just yeah. there's a pile of shit behind me, <laughs> so I must be up to something. <laughs> up to something. I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Always, always, always. Uh, yes, me too. Um, yeah, I really have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I'm sure I will think of something at some point, but not now. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've uh, got our 
Bones and Babbins official stickers already in envelopes. I had to order note cards because I realized when I went to ship them that I had nothing to put them in. Um, yes, and they're fancy rainbow. Aren't they fun? I was super excited. So they are set and stamped and ready to go out to our patrons. Um who I appreciate and adore very much. Um, it's yes, Marina Maker Giving Week this week, um, which is, if you're not aware, um, listeners, of what Murderino Makers are. Murderino. I don't know what it is either. Yeah, uh, murder. I'm guessing you know Murderino is a fan of my favorite murder. Uh, the official Murderino Makers is a group of makers that um, that have kind of bonded together and have been around. Um, Oh, for quite some time now, but we give, we vow to give 15% uh, of all of our profits during giving week to that month's charity. And the charities tend to be like ending the backlog, um, focusing on indigenous rights. We made sure that we were backing Black Lives Matter. Um, so it's, it's socially conscious and um, prior to revolution and pandemic, we focused a lot on, again, ending the backlog and victims' rights and uh, domestic abuse and things like that. So, uh, which is really fun. It's a fun way for us to get back and to uh, basically try to make things better. So that, nice. so that is uh, that is the Murder Reno Makers, and it's Giving Week this week. So, um, which is fun, but it's also um, I'm in the middle of trying to get all of my things from I had a Facebook page or not a Facebook page I have a Facebook page at an Etsy store um for quite some time uh like I don't know like over 6,500 sales and decided to switch from Etsy to my own shop so I'm in the middle of trying to build my own shop and launch that on my site so that's what I'm up to um I got a bunch of supplies in so I can start cranking out some new designs and I'm finishing up the Francis Glessner Lee Patron Saint sticker for Bones and Bobbins yes. that I'm working on. Uh, I just Which we've now had a million ideas for. Right. Uh, I just have to print and cut the kitten corsets. That design is done. Um, so, yeah. I am so excited about kitten corsets. I, I really like the kitten corset sticker. Like, I, I like uh, it. makes me feel good to be designing again and... I like the I like stickers. It's fun to make them now. So that just made me remember that wasn't like oh I want to say 1950s slang for boobs sweater puppies. I think so. Like that sounds very grease-like era familiar. Yeah. Well, I have a slang dictionary from <laughs> well, I think slightly earlier than that. Which I get some of my favorite phrases from. But, um, There's, yeah, I don't know. Have you, it just... have, have you watched Schitt's Creek at all? No. So there's a character on there played by Catherine O'Hara, who's brilliant actress, uh, named Mara. And she has an accent and a dialect completely all of her own. And so... Daniel Levy, who is one of the creators of it, Eugene Levy's son, uh, gifted her this book. And I have it somewhere, and I can't remember the title of it. I keep trying to find it. But it is just a book full of these obscure 
and amazing words that make me so happy. And she uses just so many crazy words in her in her her dialogues. Um, I like words. Words are fun, but they're very. It's a lot of words that are antiquated and were once probably popular, but now have fallen out of style decades ago. Um, so it's fun. Maybe we have similar book collections. Um, I always thought that if I were going to start a fashion blog, which is never going to happen, <laughs> that I would call it cat sticks because that used to be slang for uh, women's legs. Nice. And yeah. Like, is that where the slang pussy came from then? I'm guessing that cat sticks came from pussy as opposed to the other way around. Interesting. I'm not really sure. I don't actually know the etymology of that. Uh, I'm sure we could take a really deep dive. Maybe that's what I'll do uh, for for next week. So would you ask me (laughs) what I've been up to? What you've been up to? Learning about pussy? (laughs) Yeah, which was a word that I had never said out loud until... The hats. Ah, yeah. And I'm still deeply uncomfortable about it. Oh, my. Which is funny because I am maybe the least prudish person in the world. And it's not that I find it to be vulgar. It's just that's not the word for it. Right, right. It's also just weird. Those have real labels. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, and we can talk about them. Right. We can talk about them for all time. Yes. But, um, yeah. Anyway. I get it. I feel like you're getting a real straight shot into my aspy brain. That is what I've been doing this week. I have been trying to solve aspy problems (laughs) that no one else understands are problems. Makes sense. And doing tech support on a friend's website because I like to find the thing that's wrong in the sea of things that could possibly be wrong. Yes, I like and and this goes right along with the episode. I really Uh like coding makes me happy. Me too. Because it makes sense. And so organized. Right. It's organized. You can usually find the problem. When you find the problem, just fix it. it just, there's just something about coding that I've always just really enjoyed. Give me your variables, yes. your orders of operation. <laughs> I get Yearning it. to run free? <laughs> run free in an orderly fashion. <laughs> oh, wasn't it breathe free? That too. I can see the Statue of Liberty from <laughs> my apartment. You would think, and by from my apartment, I mean I would have to go on the roof. But still, like, that shit's right there. Yeah. You would think I would know. Anyway. You know what else is right there? Uh, uh a fire truck. <laughs> <laughs> and our Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon. Uh, and normally, right now, we'd give a totally normal and not all creepy welcome to new members. This is the first episode we don't have a new member, but we have two members 
that upped their level this week. So because they're amazing, uh, and we amazing. love them absolutely. So huge shout out and thank you to Elaine and Heather. You are the bestest. Absolutely. And I think we would actually go beyond exploring hidden graveyards in the woods with you. I I think we would maybe step foot into that real dark cave. Absolutely. That nobody should go into. Definitely. That one. I'll even go first. As long as I have like a flashlight and my knitting needles. Because weapon. Weapon and light. I will bring witchcraft. There you go. (laughs) Uh, Or my, um, well, I just have big dick energy. (laughs) Broadly, for someone who is a mini human, my dick is massive. It like has its own zip code. I dig that about you. Yeah. So I don't need to go in armed. But I do want a light source. Light source is always good. Although that said... Whenever I'm knitting with double-pointed needles, mm-hmm. if I happen to be watching Buffy, <laughs> I always pocket them and don't even notice that I have pocketed them yeah. um, because, I mean, second nature to grab a weapon. I have giant, I have a set of giant, I don't even remember what gauge they are at this point, needles that are called my Mr. Pointies. When the girls would draw me as a superhero when they were little, I was always, my knitting needles were my weapon. That's funny. Um, on my other podcast, um, the Very Serious Crafts podcast, which is delightful. One of my co-hosts, little brothers, drew all of us as superheroes, <gasps> and it it was really clear that he actually listens to the podcast, Aww. and we all had our various weapons um, based on things that we had talked about in in the show that's anyway, amazing it just made me that's think of amazing. that yeah. and he put a witch hat on me which i thought was adorable <laughs> that is adorable yes like attention to detail i appreciate that yes so speaking of like exploring things and gangs of armed chicks <laughs> I mean, uh, armed with knowledge. Yeah. Knowledge is power, man. Probably also knives and axes. Sometimes. Flints. Um, Anyway, I want to tell you about Girl Guide Spies. Yay! I'm excited. So, if you are an American listener, you probably know the Girl Guides as Girl Scouts. So that's who we're talking about here. So the story of the Girl Guides actually starts with the Boy Scouts Mm. because I guess it never occurred to anyone that girls too might like to be scouts because patriarchy Uh, well (laughs) and and so in uh, 1908 a british oh wait how do we say lieutenant general oh i remembered uh robert baden powell 
wrote a book called Scouting for Boys, a handbook for instruction in good citizenship. It was published because the Lieutenant General had noticed that young boys liked making themselves useful during wartime activities. I should note that said activities were taking place in South Africa at that time because colonialism. So yeah, yeah. Well, there's a dark side to literally everything. (sighs) Anyway, or a very very white side, as the case may be. Deeply, deeply, unpleasantly white side. A very very bright side, perhaps. Wait, no. Anyway, Mm -hmm. colonialism. No. (laughs) Okay. So the book that he wrote covered things like tracking and signaling and cooking. And he also took a big group of boys out on a camping trip that I guess was sort of the inspiration for then writing this instructional man. An instructional manual. Okay. Um, and so, the thing is, girls bought the book, too. <laughs> and they also started calling themselves scouts. Nice. And for a while in that first year, there were scout troops some of which were only girls calling themselves Girl Scouts. And there were some co-ed groups that were forming. Um, Which, of course, because of the patriarchy, that went about as well as you would expect. Yeah. Um, So I'm not saying that the Girl Guides as an organization was conceived... Because of this quote from the Boy Scouts Headquarters Gazette in 1909. But I'm going to guess that it didn't help. So, quote, If a girl is not allowed to run or even hurry to swim, ride a bike, or raise her arms above her head, how can she become a scout? Now I have several questions. Oh... (laughs) Including, why can't I raise my arms above my head? That seems like just reaching for things. Is it because I might show an ankle? Like, I... I, I, Aren't we a little late for that being the risque thing? I I thought that was more Regency. There's a lot of curse words flowing through my head right now. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. That's... Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless... Girl Scouts were still registered at Boy Scouts headquarters because they existed. All right. And so that wouldn't do because propriety. Mm. So Baden-Powell decided that the Boy Scouts should, in fact, be boys and asked his sister, Agnes Baden-Powell, or Baden-Powell, I'm unclear, perhaps baden That sounds probably more correct. Um, Agnes Baden-Powell to form the Girl Guides. Uh, And the first company 
which seems to align with the American idea of troop mm-hmm. um, that Miss Baden Powell registered still exists. That's awesome. Which I think is kind of cool. I also kind of um, hope that Agnes punched her brother in the nuts. Oh, Ag- Agnes. Uh, I feel like Agnes maybe got a little of her own by preparing girls and young women to pick up the slack <laughs> when the boys went off to war. Nice. Um, and I'm not sure very much about her ideology, but I do know that she did start the Girl Guides and that she called them guides for an interesting reason that I think is pretty telling. Also, we're going to cringe here for a moment. Okay. Okay. So the Girl Guides were named after a regiment in the British Indian Army. Mm. There's where we cringe. Yep. <laughs> um, called the Corps of Guides, which was known for its skills in tracking and survival. That's cool. Yeah. So it was named for a group with those skills not i don't know swimming and jumping and biking and raising of the arms <laughs> well i mean camping mostly camping um maybe maybe they were talking about raising arms like raising guns not raising oh. physical arms i don't think so though i don't know <laughs> that, uh, that anyway. could that makes so, more sense than not being able to like raise your physical arms officially the girl guides were formed in 1910. So they were still very new when the Great War, also known as World War I, broke out in 1914. And in August of 1914, a letter from Miss Baden Powell encouraged these newly minted girl guides to work for badges that would be useful during the war effort, Um, especially first aid, cooking, nursing, knitting, and gardening, which you may think of as traditionally feminine skills, which they are, but they were also the skills that kept both soldiers and people at home alive. Right. They're important. Um, Yeah. And they could also, if they wanted, go cheer up families who had parted with a father or son. And I'm not sure if parted means died or parted means they were just off to war. I'm a little unclear um, because I'm direct and that is not. Yes. But one of my favorite things that the Girl Guides did during uh, the war effort in World War One was um, they were tasked with collecting a number of medicinal herbs like foxglove for digitalis, broom, and hemlock. They were green witches. So, what's that? They were green witches. <laughs> And they could kill you. Digitalis, man. That ain't nothing to fuck with. 
I mean, I guess unless your heart is failing. And then you fuck with it in very small controlled amounts because yes. otherwise it will do the opposite. Anyway, so um, while that was going on mostly in the UK, Girl Guides in Canada worked in munitions factories, made surgical dressings and bandages, knitted socks, distributed informational leaflets, sewed er, and sewed soldiers' clothing in factories, and prepared khaki fabrics. And okay. I'm not really sure what preparing khaki fabrics would be. Um, I, I'm guessing either cutting out the patterns yeah. or dyeing them, perhaps, that yeah. kind of processing. Um, but, uh, so, meanwhile in Canada, that's what was going on. Gotcha. And the Girl Guides broadly... And this would extend into also World War II, which will come up again and again, because the Girl Guides were consistently part of the war effort. Um, They hand-embroidered their own badges. And the skill on the badges that they made for their uniforms is just astounding. Um, I found a really neat uh, group of photographs from the Girl Guides Canada website that showed the 1940s era uniform with the hand-sewn patches and instead of pins they had tin buttons to show membership because of metal shortages. Mm -hmm. It's just... It's really interesting to look, and I find this about pretty much all textiles, you can tell a lot about history and what was going on at the time from looking at the textiles of an era, and these uniforms really tell a story. Yeah. Also, something kind of neat, and before we get into the the spooky, spooky spying, uh, is that um, in World War II... Guide International Service was formed, which consisted of adult girl guides who were sent in teams to Europe following World War II to help with relief work. That's cool. Which I think is really neat. Yeah. And also, like, caring for war orphans. And, like, there were a lot of things that frankly men weren't prepared to deal with yeah that women were at the time and maybe even now yeah (laughs) right um as i roll my eyes but i thought that was kind of neat that that the bond of being a girl guide was so strong that it would extend into adulthood and while we now and i say we some of us may have grown up thinking that Girl Scouts or Girl Guides, depending on where you were, or 4-H or whatever Mm -hmm. it was um, where you grew up. Um, Not that 4-H is the same thing, but not dissimilar. Um, They were sort of out of fashion, at least in my childhood. I really love the idea that... These adult 
women were still so connected to that idea of service that they formed this group to go help with work that needed doing. So, now I want to tell you about that time the Girl Guides worked with MI5. (laughs) Yay! Yes, that MI5. Yes. Like, the James Bond MI5. (laughs) So excited. Or isn't he MI6? Five, six, you know, whatever. Whatever am I. Gosh, I should really know that. Um, Hold on. I need to find out before I embarrass myself. Uh, It is, yes, MI6. I was correct. Yes. Thank goodness. Okay. So, in the First World War, about 90 teenage girls between age 14 and 16 worked for security service MI5 in World War One. Wait, I said that already. They're all still in World War One. Yes. <laughs> um, so these girls, aged 14 to 16, like I said, earned 50 pence per week as messengers to distribute highly classified information for the war effort. Okay, that's my kid's age, and that doesn't seem like a lot, but then again, back then, that probably was a lot. I don't know if it's risking your life a lot, but it's Um, badass, no matter what. It it is risking your life a lot, and uh, as the war wore on, these girls became so trusted that some of the messages they were delivering were allowed to be delivered verbally. Oh, wow. So they wouldn't have the actual information on them. Oh, wow. So they were being trusted with war secrets and delivering those secrets safely to where they needed to go. So they were actually really, really involved in the real world consequences of the war effort. Right. I mean, they're essentially agents at that point. Yes. And, I mean, they they were. So, this is my favorite little tidbit about this. And I'm very, very excited to tell you. You may be wondering, why? Why the girl guides (laughs) were the ones who did these obviously dangerous missions. Well, apparently at the start of the war, that task had been given to the Boy Scouts. But very, very quickly after, the Girl Guides were deemed to be more efficient because they were less boisterous and talkative. (laughs) Suck on that, Boy Scouts! All I'm saying is the Boy Scouts were too chatty (laughs) and too loose-lipped to be trusted with war secrets. Yes. Yeah. So that's my favorite. favorite I like that. Yeah. The role of the girls was uncovered when Girl Guiding UK and MI5 researched their histories as part of their centenary celebrations. MI5, which was founded in 1909, 
tracked down a secret document called Duties of H Branch, which specifically covered the goal or the roles of the girl guides. Mm. And I got this quote from the site Scotland's War. Okay. Because I could not find, even on MI5's website, the primary source document. Um, It's classified. Well, it was unclassified. That's the (laughs) whole point of them even talking about it. Anyway. um, Section H6 adds, quote, A messenger should be between the ages of 14 and 16, a good or a guide of good standing, quick, cheerful, and willing. Guides are engaged on three months probation. The initial rate of pay is ten shillings a week, fifty pence, with dinner and tea included. Okay. Guides who do special work or have special responsibilities receive a higher rate of pay. Those who help in the kitchen receive four shillings and sixpence extra duty pay per month. The guides are paid weekly by the captain on Friday morning. The hours of work are from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. and 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. on alternate weeks. 50 minutes are allowed them for dinner and 20 minutes for tea. Girl guides are on duty on alternate Sundays, and they get one half day off duty each week. A week's holiday is given in the summer and short leave at Christmas and Easter. When a guide falls sick, a doctor's certificate must be sent within 48 hours of the illness. Otherwise, pay is stopped. So these were like actually enlisted girls. Seriously, um, yeah. And so the document also explains the duties of the guides, which are, quote, the guides are responsible for dusting all rooms on their floors between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m., cleaning and filling the ink pots and disinfecting the telephones, <laughs> as, as well as uh, answering any bells which may ring between those hours. After 10 a.m., their work consists chiefly of collections for the dispatch room, for posts and for running messages, sorting cards, collecting files, collecting waste paper, and rolling it up ready for burning. And this has been confirmed by MI5 since 2009 in recognition of a century of girl guiding. So this isn't just rumor it really happened and so awesome yeah and i mean i was thinking about why you would pick girls from 14 to 16 and my guess is because those girls can be invisible yeah because they either look like children mhm or they look like teenagers, but they don't look like women. Right. And it would be really... You wouldn't expect girls of that age to be entrusted with anything of severe importance. 
And so I just think that's fascinating. I would love to hear more about the reasoning behind why they chose that age range and what those girls actually thought about what they were doing because there isn't much information on that available. I mean, women are easily dismissed to begin with. Especially but then teenage you, girls. Right. So they're, you know, teenage girls and very young girls, they're just, um, you know, they're flippity gibbets. There's nothing... They're just flighty oh, little things that couldn't you know, possibly I be of bet importance. They also picked that age because they wouldn't necessarily be targets for sexual assault. One would hope. I'm just thinking of of how old fourteen to sixteen year olds really look as opposed to how old they think they look at the time. Right, right. And they look like kids. Definitely I mean, am. some of them, a few of them really do not, like, to their, unfortunately, negative targeting often. Right. But um, I wonder, I mean, that must have, because they were being sent into areas that were largely men and nurses, I would think. Anyway, well, and, and, I just think that's interesting. And, and if caught, they're children. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... Mm-hmm. And, I mean, hopefully that would be taken into account. I I don't know... Sure, war is um, war. ...what the rules of engagement were at that time. Oh, well, and especially what... during World War One, During World War Two. Right. II, World War Two. I know. All bets were off. Um, well, I mean, there were... Also, technically, I believe uh, rules of engagement Mm. at World War II. Like, it was known that if you surrendered to to U.S. troops, you wouldn't be tortured. Like, that was a a thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, not so much anymore. (laughs) But, like, that used to be one of the points of pride of the U.S. military. Right. That people would surrender to them because they knew they wouldn't be treated poorly. Ah, yes. Yeah. Anyway, so, Girl Guides, man, they're fucking badass. Seriously. That is incredibly badass. Yeah. And there's a lot more information on, like, what they did, and um, there's... I found a little bit of information on specifically their activities in World War II, though I couldn't find specific spying oh, okay. being done then, but that also might be too soon to be declassified. Yes. Also, uh, it would indicate they were incredibly good at their job. Oh, yes. And heaven forbid women be incredibly good at their job. Although there were many um, women agents. not necessarily well on certain sides there were many known um and especially propaganda spreaders but yes there is um an entire book called how the girl guides won the war about um thousands of them taking their girl guide vows which are 
pretty much exactly what you think of as scout vows now. Um, I used to have it memorized because <laughs> I was a troop leader. <laughs> Were you? I was. <laughs> I actually started uh, my oldest, her kindergarten, her troop in kindergarten. I was a troop leader. Yep. Interesting. I um, I was a Cub Scout. Nice. Before that was a problem. Oh, everything's a problem to them because they're mostly run by the Mormon Church. But that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> wow. Um, so they may or may not have been spies, but thousands of them took their vows literally during the Second World War and risked their lives in the name of the war effort, um, rescuing children from the Warsaw Ghetto. Oh, wow. Uh, apparently working for MI5, though that hasn't been concerned or confirmed specifically that I can find, um, or feeding prisoners in Auschwitz. Wow. Which is quite something. Um, so they were extremely, extremely important to very real work. Um, it was illegal to be a guide under the Nazis. Wow. So they went underground and they rescued Jewish children from extermination. That's and, fucking amazing. Like, yeah, just and elevate. Yeah, so, and these were presumably, there are branches of the girl guides or Girl Scouts worldwide. Mm -hmm. And so these were presumably girl guides who were in either Germany or occupied territories. And they worked in children's homes as nurses, provided bandages made from old women, old women. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not, not, okay, we're not going Ed Gein on this one. Old linen. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, they gave out food and drink, and they organized, um, or one group organized over 15 auxiliary hospitals and refugee shelters. Wow. Um, and centers for lost children. They organized escapes from prison camps and hospitals and hid prisoners. Um, they ran a kitchen amazing. that fed up to 600 children's, children's, children a day, and they also fed prisoners and penetrated enemy lines to feed soldiers. Um, others were stationed on Warsaw roofs, uh, shoveling off incendiary bombs. Nice. Like, like consider. Like, that's actual uh, combat. <laughs> the, like, live ammunition (laughs) and while their fellow guides stood in the streets ready to extinguish them with sand and that's some trust right there too i'm just saying (laughs) right uh they helped british soldiers to escape um a prisoner of war camp um only to be caught at the yugoslavian border apparently like, they're just all of these stories about how these girls, and let's be clear, these are, are children. 
Yeah. They aren't adult women. No. No. Um, they were taking the whole be prepared mentality, which is the Girl Guide motto. I know it's the Boy Scout motto, too, right? Mm-hmm. Is it also oh, the Girl yeah. Scout motto? No. Motto? Um... I promise to sniff, 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 sniff. On my honor, I will try to uh, yeah. serve my country and mankind and live by the Girl Scout law. I'm missing God. a chunk of it in there. God. That's, God. I've You're missed. missing God. <laughs> I skipped over God, sorry. Yeah, it happens. So some of them were arrested by the Gestapo. Um, some of them printed and edited and distributed local underground newspapers, which contained information that they gleaned from their own covert radio monitoring. Oh my Three of them died at Auschwitz. Oh, no. Um... Although the UK guides were lucky enough to not be living under occupation, uh, they really did prepare very, very thoroughly. And when the British government, according to the author of, of this book, was only interested in winning the war and didn't have time to think about the aftermath, Mm -hmm. the girl guide stepped into the breach and the guide emergency committee started meeting from 1942 alongside the Red Cross, Quakers, and Salvation Army, preparing for peacetimes. And they also went under... A period of intensive training to become volunteers for international service. And again, I just want to point out that these are children. Babies. Yes. And it wasn't just the girl guides. The brownies were involved, too. Oh, they're even babier. <laughs> the, these are or children, children. Right. Although, as far as I can tell, they were involved largely in fundraising and helping behind the scenes. Still, though. I mean, that's, that's still responsibility. You know? uh, yeah. I just, I can't even imagine. Um, so there's an entire section of this book also devoted to the brownies um, and how they basically made a huge, huge quantity of knitted items to send out and how they all dealt with, like, outbreaks of typhus and dealing with gravely sick children and brownies are like nine and ten years old yeah even younger right well it starts out as a daisy uh so kindergarten and first grade is daisy and then second to third second and third grade i believe is our brownies and then uh there's girl scouts and then i can't remember what comes after scout well, um, like the uh, not but... eagle, but whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, we're talking about nine and ten years old. Yeah. 
that is um, just a little taste of what the girl guides and the brownies were up to during the Second World War, when they probably were also spying and sending covert messages, although we cannot specifically, at least I cannot specifically, confirm that with a primary source. Um, but if you want to know more, you should absolutely yes. read How the Girl Guides Won the War, which was written by Janie Hampton. So that is uh, how badass the Girl Guides slash Girl Scouts actually are that and were. is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And I'm so, I was so cussing exciting for this episode because I am also going to talk about some badass ladies during yes, wartime. And at the end of this episode, I think everyone listening will wonder how the patriarchy is still a thing or is a thing because seriously. Yeah. I would just like to say that, that the guides did the knitting and the sewing and the cooking and created their own badges and also made their own uniforms and made the uniforms for the men and, you know, also made the bandages and did the nursing and, oh, I don't know, picked the herbs that made the medicines. Like, they did it all. Like, seriously. Crafty bitches, man. Do not fuck with us. Exactly. Exactly. If you can make with your hands, you are a dangerous, dangerous, useful weapon. Yes. And don't ever forget it. Damn, Skippy. <laughs> so today, I'm going to talk about the art of espionage through knitting. Ooh. Yes! And I'm going to cover two facets of this and some badass ladies that we are going to for sure be adding to our patron saint collection. Oh, my goodness. So I'm going to start uh, with the why. Like, why knitting? Well, knitting has long been wildly popular out of necessity and just the tradition of handicrafts. During wartime especially, though, men, women, children, basically everyone was recruited to knit for the troops. Uh, yeah, if you weren't at war, you were knitting. Right. Uh, especially uh, my arch nemesis, Socks. Uh, <laughs> So <laughs> I love knitting socks. They scare me. Uh, so I'll, I don't even wear hand knit socks, and I love making them. Well, I'll delve deeper into the into that bit during our uh, our next curiosity dispatch. Um, okay. But with the popularity, it was it was a harmless task that so many partook in. So women, especially, were seen knitting all over the place. You they could pretty much blend in anywhere a lady knitting in pub totally commonplace it was a perfect yeah. disguise to eavesdrop so that's part of the wine knitting the second is so like in addition to designing things i also like to code things uh fun random natalie <laughs> yes. fact i wrote my first animated computer art when i was in third grade and in fifth grade, I taught all of the faculty at our school district an adult Apple basic class. So, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Someday we need to discuss how I 
in basic programmed my tandy os 9 (laughs) to um turn on and start typing during a slumber party (gasps) yes we do so i love coding and knitting it's binary it's essentially just two stitches knit and purl and if you look at any pattern it kind of looks like a page of code uh, the binary because ne- it is a page of code, right? The binary nature of it makes it perfect to adapt into any code, mm-hmm. um, especially Morse code, and actually to uniquely make up their own ones. So the purl yeah. stitch and punch know- cards. Yep. Yeah. So if you don't know, the purl stitch makes uh, a stitch that looks like a horizontal line or a small bump, and the knit stitch is smooth and looks like a low V. So by using a single purl stitch and then like three. And alternating row together, you can one can actually transmit in Morse code of a dot and a dash. So, mm-hmm. um, but and then other knitters they tied small knots into the yarn, uh, with each knot's placement denoting a unique code. So, like one of the ones I read about was like they could they could hold this this knitted object up to uh, a sheet of paper or a spot on a wall that had the alphabet out. And then where it hit was a different letter. Man, you had to have some amazing tension control. Seriously. So you add you add that commonplace, easy to blend, plus the ability to friggin' code, and that it's pretty perfect in terms of That's because women are amazing and right? why we went to the moon. Exactly. Because and a woman programmed that shit. Exactly. Uh, so how do these badass ladies use that combination to make huge impact on wars? And which wars were they involved in? Tell me, tell me, tell start, me. I'm gonna. And we're gonna take us back to the Revolutionary War in the U.S. So Holy as, shit. Yeah. Yeah. So as British troops took over the homes of colonials during war, people were like, well, they were less than pleased. Uh, and one such dissatisfied hmm. rebel was badass number one. Molly, a.k.a. Mom, (laughs) Rinker of Philadelphia. So Hell yes, Mom Rinker. Right? So troops quartered themselves. Don't fuck with Philly. Seriously. Uh, Troops quartered themselves in her house, and they didn't allow any of the men of the household in the dining area because that's where they would meet and dine. But Molly, however, was allowed in to serve the troops. And it was here... That she listened extremely closely to all the little conversations they had as she floated about undetected, filling their mugs, taking their plates. What and she did would... they think she was? Did they think she didn't think? Well, of course not. She's a woman. We don't have oh. brains. So she would then write all the information down that she heard on a small piece of paper, wrap it around a stone, and then wrap her yarn around the stone. Until it formed, like, a normal-looking ball of yarn. She would then take her knitting and her little yarn ball to a rock that overlooks some woods, and she would sit there and knit. And then at exact time that she needed to, she would drop that ball of yarn off the rock into the woods below without being noticed, and one of George Washington's men would ride by and grab the yarn to learn the British military secrets. So, fuck yeah, Molly Momrinker. So that's like the first, and now, again, it's not entirely like coded in knitting, but knitting is how it was distributed. Now, a lot of times when you hear, like the first thing that came out of my daughter's mouth when I mentioned knitting espionage was Madame Defarge, 
who was an advocate for the French Revolution in A Tale of Two Cities by Dickens, which was written back in 1859, uh, when I mentioned the spies. So there are theories of the symbolism behind her character. They're actually kind of a fun deep dive, including that she represents one of the aspects of the fates, the mori, the fates as represented in Greek mythology. They used yarn to measure out the life of a man and to cut Uh it to end it. So Defarge knits, and her knitting secretly encodes the names of people to be killed. The fact that she just chilled by a fucking guillotine knitting away and no one thought anything of it is pretty much a perfect example of how knitting knitters could blend in anywhere. And her badassery as a character is kind of debated by many. She's fictitional, so I didn't include her. She is not number two. Our lady whose badassery is not debated and who is our badass number two Yes. Is Louise de Bittany. Well. She is French. Uh, the woman who ran probably the largest spy network of the Great War. Louise, huh. yep, Louise was born in July of 1880 into an aristocratic family, but the family ended up suffering like a huge financial loss, which forced her to get a job and that job was she was a governess and a tutor to the children of wealthy families like in various european countries oh no genteel poverty right uh they were house rich (laughs) because of this though she ended up speaking english german and and italian fluently and then to a lesser like you do great and then to a lesser degree russian czech and spanish I mean, like everyone outside America does. Right. Uh, so after the invasion of... Not Lille, those specifically, but... Right. Right, right, right. So after the invasion of Lille in October of 1914, she fled yeah. to Saint-Omer, where she helped care for the wounded. In mm-hmm. February of 1915, she enrolled in the British Secret Intelligence Service under the pseudonym Alice Dubois. And she was soon joined by a woman who went by the alias Charlotte Lemeron. And from there, the Alice Network was born. And it enlisted over 80 agents in the region of Lille alone. And an important logistics hub for the German army because before um, it was before it extended its uh, operation into Cambrai, Valencay, and Saint-Quentin. Uh, so the Alice Network provided information about military emplacements. I just got chills. And airfields, and they monitored troop movements. They located gun batteries and munitions depots. And they helped Allied soldiers escape to Holland, which was a neutral country then. The network is estimated to have saved the lives of more than a thousand British soldiers during the nine months of full operation from January to September of 1915. Eventually caught. Hell yes. Eventually caught and sent to Siegberg Prison. She led a strike. So initially they were going to they were going to kill her, but then she ended up talking her way down to just like lifelong labor. Then she led a fucking strike at having to assemble munition parts and refused to. Um sadly, she ended up dying in 1918 from like a lung ulcer, but most attribute knitting as being the main way that they managed to complete the influenza. Test. Right. <laughs> So using it to blend in and code, even written, write code within patterns and then pass them on. So fuck yeah. Cool. Also, there's a book called The Alice Network, 
which I was excited about, but then I found out that it's a novel that's kind of loosely based on. Um, but I'm going to try to find some more sources of actual fact to, um, to add in the notes. So that brings us to badass lady number three, which is Phyllis Latour Doyle. And she might be my favorite. Phyllis was born in 1921 in South Africa to a French doctor and a British citizen. Sadly, her father died just three months after she was born. Her mother would end up remarrying three years later to a race car driver. Um, unfortunately, as awesome as he was, <laughs> he let his he let Phyllis's mother race as well, which was unheard of. Sadly, she died in a car crash. So, well, most race drivers died in right? car crashes. But, like, she's already say. got, like, an exciting life right there. But uh, Phyllis ended up moving to England in 1941, so 20 years old, joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force as a flight mechanic. But she was quickly recruited to becoming a spy. She went through rigorous mental and physical training at that point. And she definitely had a mission, and it was pretty personal. Mm -hmm. She joined the SOE in revenge for her godmother's father having been shot by the Nazis, and her, then her godmother's suicide after being imprisoned. Uh, so she was like, she, well. was, she was on a mission. Uh, and she was commissioned as an honorary section officer. Again, she was cool. like 20. Uh, in May, on May 1st of 1944, she parachuted into uh, Normandy to operate, <laughs> seriously, to operate as part of, a, of the scientist circuit, and she, using the code name Genevieve. She was kind of a tiny, she was kind of, she was Haley's size, and, <laughs> and fluent in French, so she was able to pose, again, as a teenage girl. Uh, her story was that her family had moved to the region to escape the Allied bombing. She rode bicycles around the area, selling soap and chatting with German soldiers. Well, at least we know what I can do if the world really goes to hell. <laughs> right, we can put you on a bike. Uh, when she obtained any military intelligence, she encoded it for transmitting by knitting using one-time codes hidden on a piece of silk that she used to tie her hair up in. And she would translate them using Morse code equipment. When explaining cool. how she concealed her codes, Phyllis said, well, I always carried my knitting because codes were on a piece of silk. I had about 2,000 codes I could use. When I used a code, I would just pinprick it to indicate that it had gone out. I wrapped the piece of silk around a knitting needle and put it in a flat shoelace which I used to tie my hair up, which I have done on numerous occasions and then forgot I had a needle in my hair and almost stabbed myself in the neck when I was sleeping. But uh, the, coded, mm -hmm. the coded messages took a half an hour for her to send to the Germans, um, or to send, and the Germans could identify where the signal came from within like an hour and a half. So she had to move constantly to avoid detection. At times yeah. she stayed with allied sympathizers, but often she had to sleep in forests and forage for her own food. During her months in Normandy... She needs to get together with the girl guides. Right? She might have been one. Uh, during her months in Normandy, Doyle sent 135 secret messages containing invaluable information on Nazi troop positions 
that was used to help Allied forces prepare for the Normandy landing on D-Day and during their subsequent military campaign. So, uh, Doyle continued her mission until France's liberation in August of 1944. At one point, she was brought in for questioning, but the German authorities didn't think to examine her hair tie, so she was released. Oh, I've heard about this. And I remember going... (gasps) (laughs) Well, reading about it. After Or maybe watching a doc. I can't remember. Yeah. So after World War II, she married an engineer with the surname Doyle. She would then go on to live in Kenya, Fiji, and Australia. She now lives in Auckland, New Zealand. She is still alive, and I want to hug her and high-five her. But also colonialism. Right. She did not discuss her wartime activities with her family until her children discovered them by reading about them on the internet in 2000. <laughs> like, how do you have I love that? Her. They write have that badass of a fucking life and then not. Uh, Can we write her a letter? Let's write her a letter. Let's do it. Seriously. Let's send her I'm a sticker. <gasps> yes, I will totally freaking do it. I am dead serious. I will try to find her address. Uh, One other method that was common of use during uh, the Second World War specifically, um, and there's like no badass one person to kind of link to it because there was a few people that did this, but the Belgian resistant movement recruited expert women knitters who lived near railway stations. The women watched for German troop and supply trains, and then they recorded their movements and the knitting patterns. And these innocent-looking knitting instructions could then be carried to the destination without fear of detection. Britain's Office of Censorship banned the sending of knitting patterns abroad in case they were used by German sympathizers to send coded messages to the en- to the enemy. So that is you would a- think that that banning would have been a hint right like a little red flag why why are they banning that that's interesting what's up with that Mm. so that is a quick jaunt down the uh knitting espionage and three of my favorite badass ladies involved with it during wartime and again between the girl guides and all of the work and thousands of troops saved by these women I then go, how the fuck is patriarchy a thing? I don't... Like, it makes zero sense to me at this point. I mean, I feel like if all of these women had just sat back and been like, weaker sex, man, sorry. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, can you imagine? That just makes me think of, like, the stories of john adams wife um when he was Mm. gone and god knows where france whatever um and she's like making the decisions to inoculate her kids against smallpox and i think one of them dies and like she's just there holding the fort as it were the patriarchy always just I don't understand. I don't either. No. 
I mean, we could if we wanted to. As we are in the middle of a global pandemic, look at the places who are handling it the best and who's in charge. Right. Seriously. Like, I... Just saying. Anyway. So. I don't. Yeah. I really don't understand how it is that women aren't running the world. I guess because we don't tend to pull out guns and shoot each other when we're mad. Right. That's true. That and, yeah. you know, society is so busy pinning us against each other that we, you know, forget to say fuck that and band together. Oh, yeah. It, that is the most solid lesson, I think, that any lady type can learn. And it is, holy shit, be good to other women. Seriously. Yeah. Help them. Let them help you. Be a team. Do this shit. Oh, that, I yeah. also forgot to add one thing. Speaking of ladies banding together. Yes. Um, about the girl guides. So I was wondering if the girl guides, though they remain a girls only organization to date. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if it was all girls or just cis girls that's and a good question i know girl scouts have opened it up i mean like yes yeah. they are very intersectional and they are very yeah they're that's if you identify yeah. as a female then you're a girl scout i mean yes yeah. well today um though the girl guides remains a girls only organization nominally um trans girls are girls yeah. And are allowed to become leaders in UK Girl Guides. Awesome. As it should be. As it should be, because trans girls are girls. They are. Absolutely. But sometimes organizations like that fuck it up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I'm sure they fucked it up for a good long while before they sorted it out, because that's how these things unfortunately work. But I thought that was important to mention, and I forgot to mention it during my uh, Girl Guides bit. So, man, women. Right? Let's get shit done. Exactly. Yeah. So this brings us to, I think, the weekly worst way to die. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. I gotta think. Do you know what yours is? Um, I'm inclined to say anything regarding anything related to the patriarchy is the worst way to go. Uh, <laughs> but a specific thing uh, would have to be just involving my knitting needles, whether I forget ones in my hair and I accidentally stab myself in the throat because I'm that talented, or I call them the double pointed needles of death. So, um, not wrong. Yeah, so accidentally just impaling myself with my own god darn knitting needles is probably my answer. All right, so I think mine has got to be having my head explode because I can't swim or raise my arms above my head. <laughs> Because I think my head would explode. Yeah, I get it. Oh, boy. 
So hey, do you want to be spooky internet friends? You can find us at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find us at bonesandbobbins.com. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It pleases the internet gremlins who can be fed after midnight. Just this one. <laughs> um, and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. So we can take all of the morbid souls and ban against the patriarchy. And I on mean, that note. Obviously. <laughs> yes. Let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. No. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. Or knitting needles, actually. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do not run with the needles. No. Yeah. Yeah, just saying. Can we run? As long as we don't lift our arms up over our head, we're cool, right? No, we, we <laughs> actually aren't able to move swiftly at all. Ugh. No. <sighs> no. Definitely can't run. Or bicycle. <laughs> I'm really sorry to inform you that we cannot hurry at all. At in all. any way. We mustn't hurry. No. Fucking Patreon. Well, I guess that's pretty good since we're literally sitting in front of microphones. Yes, because pandemic. Sorry. And patriarchy. Fucking patriarchy. <laughs> anyway. And on that note, <laughs> and goodbye. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.